Please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 24. Genesis 24. Don't panic too much when you see that this chapter, which we plan to cover, um, is 67 verses long. We will attempt not to to, um, get too bogged down in the irrelevant details along the way. We do want to give you the storyline of the text first as we walk through it, uh, and then applications of the text as well, and we want that to take up a good part of our time. But, as Andrew Steinman does say, introducing this text, the account of the acquisition of a wife for Isaac is the longest single narrative in Genesis. If you think it's long, it's because you're right, it is. That's often how um, an emphasis, a special emphasis was placed on one part of a narrative in Hebrew narratives like this. Uh, So Steinman continues, Here Abraham provides for his son, furthers the line bearing the messianic promise, and conducts his last major action in Genesis. This story also introduces readers to introduces readers to two very important people in the life of Abraham's grandson, Jacob, his mother Rebecca, and his uncle Laban. This story is the first of three narratives in the Pentateuch, in the five books of Moses, where a woman meets a man at a well, and it leads to marriage. The other two are Genesis 29, 1-14, Jacob meets Rachel, and Exodus 2, 15-21, Moses meets Zipporah. Those might be some helpful thoughts going into the text to notice some things as we read it. But the big idea before we get into the text, I think, is this. In answer to prayerful faith, the Lord provided a fitting bride for Abraham's heir. I'll say that again. In answer to prayerful faith, the Lord provided a fitting bride for Abraham's heir. That's the big idea of the text. Of course, we'll have to unpack applications of that later. Storyline of the text. Let's work our way through it quickly. First of all, verses 1 through 9, that's the first section we'll read. Abraham commissions his chief servant to get Isaac a bride. Abraham commissions his chief servant to get Isaac a bride. Let's read starting in verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. So Abraham commissions his chief servant to get Isaac a bride. Notice Abraham knows he's he's getting very old, and his wife Sarah is already deceased. That was the last chapter. And the Lord has blessed Abraham in so many ways, according to his promises, And Abraham is in this land that's promised to him and to his seed forever. And so it's all important, first of all, that that Abraham not choose a wife for his son Isaac from among the Canaanites. Uh, On the one hand, uh, idolatry was rife in Canaan, though, remember, Abraham's family back in Haran also were, to an extent, idolaters. Um, But as Meredith Klein puts it, 
the Lord was to give Canaan to his people supernaturally in a redemptive judgment on the Canaanites. Hence, the Abrahamites were not to try to secure their hold on the land as a work of the flesh through intermarriage with the Canaanites. That would be a failure of faith akin to the feudal scheme that resulted in Ishmael, the rejected son of the bondwoman. I think he's on to something there. God had promised that one day he would drive out the Canaanites to make room for Abraham's seed. And so the plan was not to intermarry with them. And, uh, as is reflected later in the Law of Moses, when the iniquity of the Canaanites is even worse, of course, um, there would be serious pitfalls if Canaanite religion were brought into, into God's chosen seed line as well. So Abraham um, indicates that he is placing his chief servant in charge of finding Isaac a bride, but he says, do not, and you need to swear to me that you will not allow my son to have a bride chosen for him among the Canaanites. You have to go back to where I came from, to the area of Haran, where my brother Nahor, for instance, and his son Bethuel um, stayed. Find a, a bride there for Isaac. But don't let Isaac go back to that land, because that would be a, an undoing of what God has done in calling me out of that land to this land. So all that... Um, is important, and he makes Abraham makes his chief servant uh, put his hand in an interesting place to swear an oath. It's a more interesting, more interesting place than perhaps you realize, too, because uh, the thigh was a euphemism, a polite way to refer to a man's reproductive organs. The Old Testament refers to sons as having come out of their father's thigh or loins, for instance. So the oath that Abraham imposed on his servant here was a solemn, it was very solemn in its necessary connection to Abraham's offspring and to the covenant of circumcision for that offspring. And as Meredith Klein puts it, this oath gesture probably even referred to the curse symbolized by circumcision. If they were unfaithful to God's covenant, they could be cut off. So that's the point there, and... and uh, Sounds very foreign and strange, to say the least, to us, but that's what is happening here. Now, verses 10 to 28, after Abraham has made his chief servant swear uh, how, he, how and where he will get Isaac a bride, verses 10 to 28, we see that God sends Rebekah, who's already been mentioned in chapter 22, God sends Rebekah in answer to the servant's prayer. That's, of course, a very brief summary of what happens in this whole section of text coming up. But let's read it, starting in verse 10. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, or uh, Aram Naharaim, but probably northern Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor, the city where uh, Abraham's brother Nahor had lived. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. It appears from the rest of the text, this, this well was at the site of a natural spring. But it says it was the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. This was the custom. They'd be getting water at night for the household, for the, for the people, for the animals. Verse 12. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and who shall say drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. There's that word for steadfast love that has covenant connotations, keeping covenant in steadfast love, chesed. Verse 15, before he had finished speaking, his prayers being answered before he had time to get it out. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was 
very attractive. The idea in the Hebrew is she looked very good. Very attractive in appearance. A maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. Uh, notice there, you sort of see it in the English. He says, please give me a little water. It's sort of like, just give me a taste. Can I just have a mouthful? <laughs> but she says, drink, my lord. And she, and the idea is she, she does more than just give him a sip. She gives him a good drink. Verse 19, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, going back and forth from where the well is at the spring to where the camels are. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way, or... Some translate that, it's, it's hard to translate directly. It may have the idea, the Lord has let me, led me straight here. Led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. So the servant prays, he asks for a sign. He asks for a sign. Now, um, this is an unusual, this is one of those unusual spots in scripture um, as I'll say more than once in the sermon, doesn't mean that this is how we should normally operate. But um, Meredith Klein again says, a request for a sign was appropriate in that historical context of special revelation in direct connection with the life of the Messianic family. The godly servant was, like his master, confident of the special superintending presence of God's angel in this mission. As verse 7 had said, Abraham had said, God will send his angel ahead of you. Um, probably referring to the very angel of Yahweh, the, the second person of the Trinity preparing the way. So um, the servant was not wrong to request a sign. This was all important to God's whole program, his whole agenda and plan of redemption for the world, that Abraham's line not die out with Isaac, but that he have a bride and then children. And so the servant requests a specific sign, a circumstantial sign, if you want to put it that way. And God answers even before he gets done asking. And this sign also was very appropriate in practical ways, perhaps. John Currid mentions that her anticipated action in giving water to him and to his animals will reflect her character of hospitality and courteousness. In addition, watering camels is no small feat. I'm still quoting here. A camel may easily lose 25 gallons of water on a long journey. The girl has to bring water for 10 of them. This task will demonstrate her industry and handling of animals, very important characteristics for someone who is to lead a nomadic existence. <laughs> so uh, this isn't just a totally random sign either. Um, he wants to find a good girl <laughs> for Isaac. And if she does this, she'll, she'll be going out of her way, way out of her way, in showing hospitality, courtesy, and good qualities of hard work and industry. So, as we saw, Rebecca came, and she did all this, just as the servant had prayed she would. And then he finds out, that not only is he in the right place and this girl has fulfilled the sign, but she is of Abraham's own stock, his own clan, which was a good thing in this context. And so immediately 
you know, the, the servant just got done praying when Rebecca came, and then when she, when everything happens just as he had prayed, then he blesses God in prayer. Apparently out loud in front of the young lady. And Rebecca runs and tells her mother's household about these things. It's interesting, her father Bethuel is mentioned, but barely. Uh, people have speculated, is he like, perhaps he was infirm or laid up or something. It seems like he doesn't take that active of a role here. Um, maybe that has something to do with it. Maybe it's more cultural. Sometimes the brothers, as we'll see here, Brother Laban show up in a moment. Sometimes they had a lot to do with making arrangements for their sister to be married. Uh, and it emphasizes her mother, her mother's household. Some cultural stuff going on here. At any rate, this brings us to verses 29 through 51 where Rebecca's family accepts God's choice of her as Isaac's bride. We're going to see the servant lay out for them all that's happened, all that's taken place in detail, so that they can see, just as clearly as he sees, that this is God's doing. And they should submit to God's obvious will in the matter. So Rebecca's family accepts God's choice of her as Isaac's bride. Verse 29. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, by the way, the ring, as, we, as the servant says later, was a nose ring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Interesting that Laban seems to connect God's blessing both here and later basically with wealth. <laughs> uh, that's how he, uh, how he's convinced that someone's blessed by the Lord if they have wealth. It's interesting what Laban focuses on this story because Laban will come back in the book of Genesis and he's, he's a greedy guy. He's very materially focused. Anyway, um, verse 31, you said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, and this was very unusual for that culture, uh, almost, almost rude, <laughs> but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord before whom I have walked I will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, Please give me a little water from your jar to drink. And he will say to me, Drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder. And she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, Please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, Whose daughter are you? She said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelet on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Uh, a way of saying, so I'll know what to do then. 
Verse 50. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. In other words, we have nothing left to say in this situation. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. Wow. That all happened so easily, you might say. But it's because the servant emphasizes that his mission, while he's there, is all important to him. That, that's his whole focus. He won't even eat until he explains everything. And also, perhaps, he doesn't want to impose on their hospitality until they know why he's really there. <laughs> and so he lays out for them the story of God's working. And of course, God is always in charge of the details of everything. But it's so evident here in how he specifically answered prayer and, and answered the need uh, which Isaac had for a bride. And as they listened to this wonderful, this wondrous account, at the end, Rebecca's family says, we have nothing left to say. The decision's been made for us, essentially. Obviously, Yahweh, your God, uh, has brought this about. So, take, take Rebecca. Let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. But then what happens next is, to me, even more um, shocking, maybe maybe uh, a strong word. It's even more surprising. Because in the next verses, verses 52 through 61... Rebecca agrees to immediately leave her family for her divinely appointed husband. Apparently everyone, including her, is convinced God is clearly at work here in an unusual way. And so Rebecca agrees to immediately, the next day, leave her family for her divinely appointed husband. Verse 52. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments, seemingly the bride price. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that, she may go. It would have been customary, you see, to have some sort of a celebration, a going away event that would last at least a little while. Um, so that the servant's wanting to break custom here. But, verse 56, the servant said to them, uh, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away, that I may go to my master. Perhaps he's thinking, Abraham's old, I... I don't want him to die while I'm gone. Maybe that's part of it. I don't know. Some have speculated that. They said, verse 57, let us call the young woman and ask her. The idea is get it from her mouth. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse. Later in Genesis, her nurse is named. Her name was Deborah. And Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Whether they were aware of this or not, right there, they're basically, almost word for word, repeating the promise that God had made to Abraham, Genesis 22, that uh, he would become uh, countless offspring. And that his offspring, especially in the singular sense, would possess the gate of his enemies. Verse 61. Then Rebekah and her young woman arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Derek Kidner mentions it's interesting to watch how the servant prays throughout here. At first he stands praying, expecting an answer at the well. Then, um, when his uh, prayer was initially answered by Rebecca doing what he'd asked that a woman would do, he bows his head to God and thanks. 
And then, um, verse 52, when the family agrees that she can be Isaac's bride, he prostrates himself to the earth. (laughs) It's this sort of um, progressive bowing before God. Uh, the, The more God answers prayer, the more the servant bows before the Lord. Um, as I mentioned, the servant here gives Rebecca's family what may have been the formal bride price um, in gifts. He also gives gifts directly to Rebecca. And um, Rebecca's nurse named Deborah and other servant girls were perhaps a dowry given to Rebecca from her family. But the most important thing in this section of verses is, as Richard Belcher has put it, that here she models Abraham who also was willing to leave his family and homeland. Such a prompt willingness to go may also reflect faith in Abraham's God. I think I can say with certainty, as we look at Genesis as a whole, um, Rebecca has a lot of problems, but she is a woman of faith. Now the last section, verses 62 through 67. Isaac welcomes his divinely appointed bride. Verse 62, now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. The Hebrew word there is a little unclear as to how we should understand it for, for meditation or, or strolling or something, because it's a rare word in the Old Testament. Anyway, he was in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. That was the sign, um, especially of someone betrothed to someone else, the veil. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, And she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. It's just interesting color here that it mentions, it goes to the trouble to mention that Isaac had returned. He'd just gotten back to where he was in the Negev, in in the south country there. He'd just gotten back from Beer Lahai Roy, which was a special place. It means the well of the living one who sees me. Again, as Kidner mentions, um, the place name is evocative, perhaps especially so to Isaac in his loneliness. Here God had met the friendless Hagar and spoken of a nation coming to birth. And so it may be some color added here that Isaac's just been to the well of the living one who saw him. And then as he's getting back, here comes his bride, all ready for him. Let me read Richard Belcher, and then we'll move on to application directly. He says, in the concluding account of the servant's mission, there is clearly the emergence of Isaac as the new master. Although he does not speak any words, he is the glue that holds the narrative together. Although Abraham is the one who commissioned the servant, the servant brings Rebekah to Isaac and reports to him the success of this journey. Thus, Isaac is presented as lord and successor to Abraham even as Rebekah is presented as mother and successor of Sarah. That is what's going on here. Basically, Abraham is moving off the scene gracefully. Now Isaac is really the master. And Rebekah is the matriarch, the mother of the promised line in Sarah's place. So we've gotten through that lengthy text. Let's talk about the applications of the text. And as I introduce applications of this text, I want to remind you to be properly careful about how we get an application out of an account like this. We have to be sure that any applications from a biblical narrative, a a true story, are actually connected to the great truths of Scripture as a whole. And that we're not just reaching into a story to rather arbitrarily pick something out that we think, oh, we should do the same thing, right? We can't simply pick someone's action recorded in Scripture and assume that everyone must therefore somehow imitate that action. 
we have to have ample warrant from other biblical considerations before we view a recorded event as, well, it's really an implied precept or command here. So let me mention a few applications I will not be making from this true story. I'll mention several that are probably silly to everyone. A few might step on some toes or think, oh, I've heard someone try to make that application before. <laughs> so, but, but I want to show you just briefly what we have to be careful of not doing. First of all, I will not demand that you seal an agreement by placing your hand under, under someone else's thigh. In fact, I would probably discourage that. I think we're all good with that one, okay? Uh, but, but again, they did it. That doesn't mean we have to do it that way, all right? I also will not suggest that you pray for a specific sign to know, let's say, who you should hire for a position on your team. I don't know who needs to hear this, but you're not Abraham's servant seeking a bride for the chosen offspring of Abraham. <laughs> That's not the situation you're personally in. It's not the same, okay? So... The fate of all God's promises does not hang upon your selection of some person for some role. Even if we're talking about uh, choosing a wife, for instance. So be careful here. So don't ask for an arbitrary sign. And the servant sign wasn't even really arbitrary. But don't ask for an arbitrary sign from God to make your decisions for you. Some people kind of get into that rut where they, they look for feelings and signs. They ask God, well, well let this scenario out play out for me so I'll know whether I should do A or B. <laughs> um, certainly we can ask God to make it clear to us from circumstances what's wise to do. That's, that's good. <laughs> that's not the same as asking for an arbitrary sign to put out there. Because asking for a sign in that way is the exception in Scripture, not the rule. So normally what we should do is simply use biblical wisdom evaluating the circumstances through the lens of God's word and make as best a decision as we can and not worry that we're going to just randomly, accidentally mess up God's plan somehow. Speaking of marriage, and again, listen carefully, um, despite what you've heard from other people and um, your emotional attachment to that, perhaps? Well, I'll start with an easy one. Don't make it a biblical rule that you should seek to marry a relative, let alone a, a first cousin once removed, which is what Rebecca was to Isaac. I think we can all agree on that one. I know Isaac did that, but don't do it just because he did it. And don't make it a biblical rule. Listen carefully. I'm saying it very specifically because there's lots of things I could carelessly say here that I wouldn't mean, but don't make it a biblical rule that a father or his designated agent must pick out a spouse for his child in every situation. Now, yes, parental advice regarding a choice of a spouse is often usually wise to heed. And what is God's clear command? It's always God's clear command to honor your father and your mother, even when you're grown. So that always factors in. But be careful about commanding something God didn't specifically command. The Bible never lays out, for instance, a specific system for selecting a spouse. I'll say that again. The Bible never lays out a specific system for selecting a spouse. Why am I going into this? Well, because this text has been abused this way before. It really has. Uh, and it's usually, almost always, arbitrary and selective how it's used and how it isn't used. But be careful about that. So while I'm, I'm not absolutely condemning arranged marriages, even where it's really, you know, in a culture where it's totally arranged and the kid has no say, I'm not c condemning that absolutely. But neither can we absolutely insist on arranged marriages or insist on betrothal it was, as it was practiced in biblical history. There have been people in recent decades, they didn't have a large following, I wonder why, um, but there have been people who've said, even, you know, very conservative courtship or something, that's not enough. You have to get betrothed before you get to know each other at all. <laughs> there have been Christians who have tried to make that application. 
it's because they're, they're not being careful in how they're applying narrative. Um, and we can't absolutely insist on one specific model of courtship. And neither does God command a man or his parents to pay a bride price for his bride. And God doesn't say that an engagement ring should instead be a nose ring. It was for Rebecca. So I'm saying, obviously, some things with a little humor. And I'm not condemning what your individual choice is or what your family's choice is. I'm not telling you to disrespect your parents. All I'm saying is be careful to say, careful not to say, thus says the Lord, when the Lord hasn't spoken. That will come out again this afternoon in a different context. But what are some biblical truths we should see illustrated in this text? Well, let me kind of list them for you, and then we'll break them down. Okay? Godly duty number one, the inconvenient path of faith must be our deliberate pursuit. That's the first godly duty we see here. The inconvenient path of faith must be our deliberate pursuit. And then we'll see a second godly duty, which is the worshipful reliance of prayer must be our constant posture. The worshipful reliance of prayer must be our constant posture. And then, well, I'll, I'll save, I'll save this uh, for later. But then um, there will be a third point about gospel grace that we see reflected even here in this text. But I'll get to that a little later. So godly duty number one, the inconvenient path of faith must be our deliberate pursuit. Abraham avoided the convenient Canaanite options to find a bride suited to the heir of Shem, the father of those who would later drive out the Canaanites. Canaan's line was under a curse, and their idolatrous iniquity would result in God's hand of destruction. So, Abraham chose to send his chief servant, think about this, he chose to send his chief servant on a long journey to choose a bride for Isaac without either Abraham or Isaac present. That was a radically inconvenient path. But in this case, it was the proper path of faith in and loyalty to God's promises. That's why Abraham did that. And the servant, of course, had plenty of inconveniences along the way, but he was faithful to his mission. And then Rebecca. Rebecca was ready to immediately, and again, this doesn't mean that everyone has to do this, but in this case, Rebecca was ready to immediately leave everyone and everything she knew, except for her personal attendance, and go to marry Isaac. Talk about leaving your parents and cleaving to your spouse. Just cut off like that one day. That's inconvenient. Not to say probably heart-wrenching in some ways, right? As I said, despite all her flaws mentioned later in Genesis, Rebecca was a woman who had faith in God's promises, and she was a woman of action even when later her actions got her into some trouble. <laughs> but she was a woman of action. And in this case, her action was driven by faith. I think it's clear. And that's worthy of imitation. It really puts flesh on the bones of a text like Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Here is an application for choosing a spouse. Again, this, this text um, this text wasn't given to us primarily to give us a checklist for how to find a spouse. But there are principles reflected here, certainly, which we should think about if we're in that position of choosing a spouse. And some of you young people aren't there yet, but you will be for too many years. So here's an application for choosing a spouse. Don't just choose someone that is convenient. 
don't think that if you don't marry this person, there will never be another option. Christian, you may only marry another committed believer. And then be wise about whether the two of you would be a reasonably good fit. Heed wise counsel. But don't choose out of desperation or simple convenience. For that matter, don't follow the world's pragmatic notions of convenience when they suggest sharing a house and a bed with someone before you marry them. Again, so often there's such pragmatism around us that we just get so accustomed to. But we must not let it um, change how we go about our Christian duty. For that matter, some of you may have to decide whether you will marry someone destined for a life of difficulty. Perhaps a difficult ministry. I'm reminded of what Adoniram Judson, a missionary candidate who would go to India and then Burma. I'm reminded of what Judson wrote in the year 1810 to the father of a young lady he had fallen in love with, Anne, but she went by Nancy, Hasseltine. This is what he wrote to her father pretty soon after he got to know her a little bit. He wrote, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? That's what he wrote. And guess what Nancy's father did? He left the decision up to his daughter. <laughs> so, you make that decision, daughter. And she said yes. She, she had to think through it, get some counsel, but she said yes. But you know this godly duty I'm talking about is not specific to marriage. The inconvenient path of faith must be our deliberate pursuit. Apply this to which church you join and how many services you attend. Do you really believe that God's simple means of sanctifying grace and the simple elements that God has commanded for worship, do you really believe those are enough? If you do, prove it by which church you attend and serve in. And as for how much you attend, do you really believe that the more you place yourself under the faithful preaching and teaching of the word, and, and in the prayers and fellowship of the saints, the more you'll experience God's glory and joy. Do you believe that? Prove it. Factor in your genuine responsibilities, biblically defined, but stop the excuses when you're actually just choosing a path of convenience. The obedience of faith... The obedience that matters is rarely convenient. It probably isn't convenient to open your mouth about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It probably isn't convenient to love your wife as your own body, men. It probably isn't convenient to obey your husband, ladies. It probably isn't convenient to lovingly teach your children and consistently correct them. It probably isn't convenient to take in the Bible for yourself and to pray on your own. It probably isn't convenient to worship together at home as a family or to avoid unwholesome entertainment and find virtuous pursuits. You getting the picture? None of this Christian life is convenient. 
That's not what this is about. Probably isn't convenient to discern between bad and good and then between good, better, and best in your life. Or to choose your next geographical move based on where you can be fully engaged in a solid church. Or to give a significant portion of your income to the work of the church and the relief of the needy. Probably isn't convenient to make friends of those who aren't like you and aren't part of your comfortable circle of acquaintances. And it certainly isn't convenient to confess your sins to God and to others whom you have wronged. And to seek forgiveness and full reconciliation with them. But let me ask you this. Do you really believe God's promises? If you do, you will deliberately walk the inconvenient path to which God calls you. This is basic to Christianity. To faith in God. Godly duty number two. The worshipful reliance of prayer must be our constant posture. So in worship of God, in, in conscious reliance on him, we pray, not just occasionally, not just when it happens to fit in our schedule. God help us. But it has to be our constant posture. Remember the beautiful prayer of Abraham's servant, calling on the Lord to prosper his mission and guide him to exactly the right bride for Isaac. But remember also the servant's response when his first prayer began to be answered. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. He doesn't say, yes, I did it. Mission accomplished. No, he prays again and gives praise to the God who answered his first prayer. And then later, when Abraham's servant heard the words of Rebekah's family, letting her go with him, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. Abraham's servant is a really great example here of a prayerful man. Let me remind you of some basic New Testament texts about this for us. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything. That's not how we deal with our concerns and troubles. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Romans 12, 11 and 12. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Colossians 4, 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You want to find God's will for you? Usually pretty simple. For one thing, pray. Pray without ceasing. 1 Peter 4, 7, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So prayer cannot be an afterthought. It cannot be an occasional activity. If you are God's child, prayer is indispensable to your identity, your calling, and your life. John 15, starting in verse 4, Jesus said to his apostles, and here he's saying something that applies to all his disciples. He says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. 
By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And then verse 16 of that same text. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. None of us are... are Anywhere close to perfect in this aspect of our lives. But this must also be our aim. To have prayer as our constant posture before the Lord. Not just going out and doing things, assuming we have God's blessing. No, God wants a relationship with us. As a father to a small child. (laughs) We ask things from the Father that he may give them to us. Last point of application. And here I I turn away from these godly duties. And I just want you to see gospel grace. Because Jesus Christ is greater than Isaac. And his bride will gladly forsake all for him. In the Gospel of Matthew, as it introduces Jesus to us, the very first verse says, This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Again, Jesus Christ is the greater heir of Abraham than Isaac ever was. And in that same chapter, what is his mission as the son of Abraham? It says, You shall call his name Jesus, Matthew one twenty one, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came to gather people in and deliver them from their sins. And we see him just beginning to do that after he's been baptized by John the baptizer. In John 3, John's disciples notice that now people are coming to Jesus. He's gathering disciples for himself. And in their mind, that's bad because John's, they think John's losing disciples, followers. But John said, John 3.27, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Just as Abraham's servant was content when his mission was complete, the bride had been brought to Isaac. So John the Baptist was content when people had been brought to Jesus and had forgotten about him. The one who brought them to Jesus, who pointed out the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But it's not just that Jesus um, gathers in a random collection of sinners to save them but he has specific people in mind from all eternity that he came to pull out of their sins and to make his bride Ephesians 5 we read earlier in the service that husbands must love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her he delivered himself up to death for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And Paul later says, No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And he quotes Genesis 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying, Paul writes, that it refers to Christ and the church. So when Genesis speaks of Adam and Eve united in the garden, it's preparing for the more important union of Christ and his church. And when Abraham obtains a bride for his son Isaac, again, we're reminded as marriage is brought to the foreground for Abraham's offspring, we're reminded that the messianic heir of Abraham shall have a bride with whom he can share all God's richest blessings. A bride called to leave everything for her heavenly bridegroom, whose inheritance outshines all the rest. 
And oh, the delight. Oh, the eternal wedded bliss when Jesus Christ will come face to face with his perfected bride, freeing her from every last barrier to her joy with him. That will happen one day. I mentioned, in connection with one of our hymns, I mentioned Psalm 45, which Hebrews 1, 8-9 quotes, proving that the Messiah is actually God's Son, that he is God himself. But of the Son, he says, and it quotes Psalm 45, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. But again, what is he quoting? He's quoting Psalm 45. So as we close, let's turn to Psalm 45 together. And with this, we'll end. Because Psalm 45 not only speaks of the king who is God himself, it speaks of his bride. Psalm 45, starting in verse 1. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant, all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Then it addresses that queen. Verse 10. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. So as our hymn paraphrased, Amid thy glorious train, king's daughters waiting stand, and fairest gems bedeck thy bride, the queen at thy right hand. O royal bride, give heed, and to my words attend. For Christ the king forsake the world and every former friend. Rebecca showed great faith in leaving everything for Abraham's heir. What will your faith look like when Christ tells you to set it all aside for him? But he's worth it. His inheritance is worth it. He owns everything. He is Lord of all. Why wouldn't you, so to speak, give it all up when he is Lord of all and all that he has is yours? Let's pray together, shall we? Thank you, Father, for this text. Uh, please help all of us to understand the points that were made and and to weigh them in the, in the uh, balance of the rest of Scripture. Like the Bereans, search these things to see if they're so. Most of all, help us to take your truth seriously enough that we love it and we heed it. And Lord, we pray for those here without Christ 
who it can probably be said of them, they don't yet understand that Christ is worth anything they have to give up for him. Please change their hearts and open their eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ, who is head over all and who will inherit everything and who gives all that he has to us. He gives himself to us. May we glory all of us in Jesus Christ and embrace him no matter what we have to give up. We ask this in his name. Amen.